City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, play script, direct. A very warm welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. They are now in their 24th year, and they are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars offer a rare opportunity to hear a discussion of the realities of working in the theater, from the performers, the producers, the playwrights, the designers, the directors, the casting directors, the press agents, union and guild leaders, and the many other theater professionals to whom these unique seminars have become so important. The wing is more than the Tony Awards, which are given for a distinguished achievement in the theater. We are an organization whose year-round programs are dedicated to serving the theater and the community with a goal of developing new audiences. To achieve that goal, we have created audience development programs for students, such as Introduction to Broadway, which began five years ago, and has enabled over 60,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, many for the first time. And through our newest program, Theater in School, theater professionals like those you will meet today go directly into classrooms to work with and talk to students about working in the theater. And in addition, we have our hospital program, which dates back to World War II and the stage door canteen. And through it, volunteer performers from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and the cabaret world have entertained more than 75,000 patients in nursing homes, veterans' hospitals, children's wards, and AIDS centers in the New York area, bringing the magic of theater to those who cannot get to the theater itself. We are indeed proud of the work we do. We're happy to have a wonderful working relationship with the theatrical community, and are grateful to everyone who makes what the American Theatre Wing does possible. We hope that you will enjoy and learn from today's seminar. And now, let me introduce today's panel, which is on the playwright, director, and choreographer. Walter Bobby of Chicago, Ron Lago Marcino of Last Night Ballyhoo, Gene Sachs of Barrymore, George White, president of the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Center, and our esteemed director, both here and abroad, and Brendan Gill, author, critic in residence at the New Yorker magazine, and on the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing. Alfred Uri of The Last Ballyhoo, Wayne Chilento of Dream, and Scott Elliott of Present Laughter. And now I shall turn it over to our moderators and they will immediately begin to dig out all the information that's on that panel today. <coughs> okay, um, yes, I will try to mine the gold here, being a gold digger, but I'm gonna start, I think, in a, since we have so many uh, live playwrights, and obviously live directors, I, I, <laughs> would, um, I would like to start um, uh, as uh, talking with Scott 
uh, since you are t today rep representing the dead playwrights uh, society here, <laughs> uh, but with Present Laughter, uh, you know, uh, and Three Sisters, and Scott has done, you've done a great deal with, uh, with living playwrights. Do you have, talk about the ghosts on, or on your shoulder a little bit, and then we'll, we'll go the other way, but I wanted you to well, address that. It's a different yeah, take. It's different. Well, you're always kind of uh, trying to serve the playwright as best as you can. But um, on the other hand, as well, like Isabel said before, about creating a new audience, you know, bringing a new audience to the theater, I think it's a responsibility of um, a director of a, you know, a dead playwright's work um, to make the play relevant to speak to, you know, a contemporary audience, which, you know, um, rather than creating a kind of, you know, a museum piece <coughs> that, you know, is the same thing that we've seen, you know, 8,000 times. I mean, present laughter has been done, you know, many times in New York, I think, and also across the country. And uh, I saw it as my job to make it a little bit more relevant for, an, you know, a contemporary audience and for young people also who are going to come see it, who are going to be able to understand exactly what made, you know, Noel Coward tick. And because that play, that particular play he wrote about himself, for himself, and, and all of his friends. I, I, uh, I kind of delved into his life and spoke with his friends about him and, and uh, tried to bring to the surface a little bit more of the subtext of you know, what the play's kind of really about. Uh, but you did have a collaborator in the sense of Lanford Wilson with Three Sisters. Yes, well, that was really great. I did have a collaborator, and it was great to have him on board because he understands the material so beautifully, and he, you know, because he has worked on it for so long, and he, he's really a fantastic man <laughs> and was wonderful to have around in the process. And he, he also helped, you know, uh, because the translation was already done when we began, um, he was there every day during rehearsals helping me to just, you know, refine it a little bit and make it just a little bit more you know, relevant. When, you know, when the Russians uh, spoke their slang, we, we turned it into American slang. You know, we tried to make it so that people who, you know, you know kids who came, you know, a lot of young people came to see Three Sisters because of the people who were in it. And, and they dug it because they understood, uh, you know, what Chekhov was trying to say. And, and, and that's kind of my goal, you know, in, they, in working they, in the they theater. They dug it in a uh, Jacobian sense. Yeah, they dug it in, yeah, they, they, well, they understood it. You know, I mean, it's very, it's it's very difficult to you know to go to the theater. I mean, I find it difficult to go to the theater and listen to people speaking, you know, so colloquially and and you know in ways. I mean, especially when it's it's not written in English, it's written in another language, and it just makes it a little bit more relevant and easy to kind of stomach when well, you're well, when you can understand what people are saying as opposed to speak, people speaking in kind of highfalutin language that we just don't speak anymore. What about this word relevant, which we are using the word relevant? Yeah. Uh, this isn't true in the other arts. We, we, there's no possible way, plainly in painting, to make a painting that is a classic painting relevant to us. We, we assume that we can establish a relationship to it. It's a classic work that we understand over right. the centuries. Same thing with poetry. Uh, the same thing with sculpture and anything else. Right. But only in drama but can, you know, can I don't we start think that, fiddling. Well, you know, but that's that's true. But a painting is just a one-time thing. You don't recreate a painting eight times a week, or you don't you don't keep doing the same painting over and over again. No, I understand but why it, it happens. But an interesting but it's thing, dangerous. it is dangerous. But but danger is good. Don't you think that most of the Shakespearean attempts, or the attempts to make Shakespeare relevant by making it modern dress or 18th century dress, or toying with Shakespeare, playing with Shakespeare, right? Uh, is, is a radically dangerous thing to do. He's well, relevant. But, what, but what's radically dangerous about it if there are people who can uh, relate to it, who are going to see it you know, in its purest form 
would not be able to relate to it. So I think that there's an audience for both. Mm -hmm. And you know, in, in, in thinking about you know, a painter, you know, because a painting is created you know, in a one-shot deal, but there are painters nowadays. I mean, let's say you know, some painter comes along and, and has an idea, and he paints the ocean, and he paints it red. Right? And then you know, somebody comes along and says, oh, well, you know, <laughs> the ocean's blue. You know, and you should not paint the ocean red. I mean, what, what, why is that not okay? And, and some people would see great beauty in that. Mm -hmm. So, that, I mean, that's... Well, that, I, I want to pick out on this, on, on relevance to a degree, and talk to Jean about uh, the relevance of Barrymore. Because here, is, as opposed to a dead playwright, we've got a dead actor. <laughs> this is not a down show, you understand? But, but um, uh, what intrigued you about... Uh, because, of course, we had a, a Barrymore show a year ago. Uh, and was it the play? Was it the character? How did the work? Getting a job. <laughs> there you are. Fair enough. <clears throat> I thought it was I, the main thing that intrigued me about it was uh, Christopher Plummer. Mm -hmm. um, that was the main thing, and uh, I've known him for years and never worked with him. And one day I went backstage to see his performance and. <clears throat> the Pinter play with Jason Robards, uh, and uh, I admired his performance in that so much. And he, he said, "Let's do something together." And I said, "Fine." And then the following week, he uh, called me about Barrymore and said he wanted to do it, and they uh, sent me the play. And uh, I thought, well, it's got a couple of jokes in it. And it seems, I think we could make it amusing with, with him. In 1935, I think, I drew a picture of Barrymore, a pencil in pencil, uh, worked over his nose for hours and hours. <laughs> I admired that nose so much. And uh, he... <clears throat> When we did the play, I suddenly remembered it, and I looked through my files and my papers, and I found this, uh, this uh, picture of Barrymore, which was pretty good. I was better at, at, at age 13 than I was, than I am now. <laughs> and I uh, gave it to Chris, and we talked a lot about how when we were young, Barrymore was like Brando was to the next generation. And uh, I suppose uh, every generation has its glamorous star actor who influences everybody. So uh, that was part of the attraction of Barrymore. And having the right actor to play it is 90% of the... Uh, uh, of the success of something like that. And of course, one of the interesting things <coughs> that you evolved in this is the uh, continuous contrast between the comedy, the lines, mm. the funny lines, the one-liners, mm. and the fact that Barrymore's life is a tragic yes. one in yes. every respect. And, and people came at the end of his life to watch him 
half dying on stage. They, they counted yeah. on his being drunk, but yeah. they really, in their hearts, yeah. and to some extent, wanted <laughs> him to be dying the way they went to see Judy Garland in her late yeah. years for that. And, and to me, it's, it's, I was just puzzled how in the world you could bring off both comedy and the intrinsic tragedy that we knew that was there. And so Plummer is a classic actor. He's a great actor. And uh, the fact is that an actor like that has a hard time finding employment nowadays. I wanted to uh, go to, to Wayne a little bit because, uh, again, we're dealing with Johnny Mercer, who is no longer with us. I just thought of that. But anyway, but more <laughs> than that, um, you know, here as a choreographer, first of all, I, uh, that is, a, a, in a sense, a really unique talent to be a choreographer. Uh, so we could talk a little bit. I'd, I'd like you to talk about how you got going mm -hmm. in the business, which we do in these conversations. Um, but also, uh, you are given a body of work of Johnny Mercer his uh, work, mm -hmm. and uh, you almost become almost more than anybody. You are a choreographer, but in the case of Dream, you really are a playwright in a, in a funny way. You really are are, are, are the creative force mm -hmm. beyond that. And of course, you relate to the, the direction and all of that. Right. Would you talk a little bit about that? And what what inspired you first? How you started, and how that easily segued or or didn't segue into doing Dream, mm -hmm. and what your inspiration was for each number or, or the numbers the choreography thing kind of fell into place when i was in chorus line and we all got acknowledged as dancers performers uh and i started doing <coughs> choreography for commercials that's how i started as a choreographer never wanted to be a choreographer wanted to be gene kelly or fred astaire or one of those people i wanted to go back to hollywood and do that um and I thought, oh, that's fun. You know, sure, I'll choreograph. Well, now, you had two great mentors. What, what I'm hearing is, right. is, uh, is Michael Bennett and Bob Fosse. Right. I imagine both very different characters to deal with. Uh, incredible force, forces and, and influences in my life that now I realize how much they influence me and how much I learned by being in their company. Um, I wished I did another show with Michael. I did two shows with Bob. and. It was really interesting. The two of them had a scope of how everything moved. It wasn't about the choreography. It was about how everything chore was choreographed. The, the stage was choreographed, primarily mostly for Michael. Michael wasn't interested in the specific dance steps. He had a core of people, and I was one of them. It was the Donna uh, McKechnie's and Bayork Lee's and myself and Tommy Walsh. We would be the core of people that went into the room that came up with vocabulary, dance steps. And he would come in and he would edit. And he would say, well, do two of those, one of those, put that together, I'll come back. And then we would do combination. He'd come back. And if he liked it, he would bring it into the other room and teach the dancers. And then choreograph the room. So that was Michael. Fantastic. Then Bob was the other. The other extreme was Bob, re, you know, he would um, rehearse us until we were blue in the face about one little f hand wrist, you know, and everyone had to be very specific. And it was about the simplicity that was exciting and that he did every one of his steps. He wouldn't have a core of people doing steps. And I feel like I'm a little bit like that. Well, a lot like that. Um, <laughs> I, I really need, back I, to that. I really need to yeah. do the steps and feel it before I can put it out there. Why were you going to have a nervous breakdown, you said? <laughs> You said you were afraid of having a nervous breakdown. Well, Chorus Line was pretty intense. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a big therapy session. No one knew that. Uh, you know, it was all about our lives, and we did 30-something hours of tapes, and what we did was we sat in a circle, and 
we talked about ourselves and where we came from and who was having breakdowns and who had family problems and who hated their mother and their father and that's how we came up with this this story right. and then it was like a head trip it was like okay Wayne no one will believe that you're married and you have a kid I'm gonna give it to him let's give it to let's give it to uh, the guy down the line well wait a minute Michael that is my story well sorry you can't do that you're gonna do I can do that well I don't have a sister and I never took a, ta a tap class. But you're going to do it anyway. Don't worry about it. And I was always like, well, wait a minute. You know, We've got the playwright and the directors here. Yeah. I, th I think that they might be writing this script right now. Yeah. But George had something. Go on. Well, I, I wanted now to get uh, to, uh, uh, you know, Ron and, and Alfred now that, uh, since you were the live ones. Yeah. Uh, and and too. Uh, I, I want to know about, uh, you know, first of all, are you, uh, how autobiographical is your play? Well, That's everybody, in, you mean, is everybody in it me? Yeah, everybody in it is me. But uh, okay. I was not, well, I was around in 1939, but not much. So I don't, mm -hmm. I don't really know. It's not autobiographical at all, except it is my parents' love story. That part is really true. My mother really did go to Wellesley. And my father really did work for my grandfather. And he really, they really did have a fight on New Year's Eve and they really did make up on the train. I mean, that's all true. Mm -hmm. So that was fun for me to write. And uh, the fact that I'm Southern and I'm Jewish and they're Southern and they're Jewish. And, and uh, when I was a little boy, I used to want to write novels like my character Lala and I would make, I think, Though Your Sins Be Scarlet was a title that I may have scribbled in a notebook when I was embarrassingly like in the 11 years old. I may have done things like that, I don't know. Uh, I have four daughters, and I seem to be around women a lot, so I always write a lot of women because that's what I hear in my head. Well, that, now, they were getting Ron, closer and closer I, to autobiography, yeah. if I ever heard it. Of course, How do we link up? Well, we linked up because we had linked up previously on Driving Miss Daisy. Right. I think one thing that happened on this play that didn't happen nearly as much on Daisy is that I think this play, yes, it did draw from, from your family, but you know your family so well that sometimes you would write, uh, you would underwrite, and you're the first one to admit that. that I leave that, a lot of stuff out. You leave a lot of stuff out. And I said, well, what is, what is the story here? I mean, the whole thing with, uh, uh, with Uncle Adolf and being, you know, uh, living in this house with his sister and sister-in-law and, uh, uh, you know, why is he not married? And, um, and, and Alfred would say, well, he probably had some, some you know, short-term things where it didn't happen. But, but, and then he'd say, oh, I know. It was probably this. And, and I said, well, that's interesting. That, you should write. And that became the girl on the, on the streetcar. One thing wonderful about working in the theater is you can write a play, and three weeks later, you can have people sit around and read it. If you write a movie, it's probably going to be 11 years until something happens. And by then, you've forgotten what you were doing in the first place. Uh, but with this play, I, it was still hot out of, out of the computer. There was a reading. And uh, I listened to it, and Ron listened to it. And I was able, I finally got, it's very important for a playwright to be able to listen to the reading and not be so frightened that you can't hear anything. It's, you just got to make yourself do that. It's, it's really hard. But if you just, and you start, to, everybody's looking at me, you know, it's like nightmare time. But if you just <laughs> listen, 
and you can listen, you can feel, I'm sure directors can feel, you can feel when it starts to <laughs> go down. Uh, and you can feel when it's right. And so we got a lot of that reading, and then about a month later, we had, it seems to be another reading, a couple of months later. Mm -hmm. Can we stop right here now and then use that afterwards so that we can ask Walter how he did more into less? Scissors. <laughs> yes, talk to that though, because that that's a uh, it's suddenly a whole new show in a sense. Um, it was, I was very interested in what, what Scott was saying because I've had the experience over at Encores at City Center. When we when we started to do the projects over there, um, we realized since the focus was the score that it would be to our advantage to cut cut the scripts. And in terms of working with the estates, sometimes when you find that you're happier when you have a living writer, as we did with, with John and Fred, because they understand the process. They actually write, they get up, and they create work. And they're not afraid, as Alfred is, of change, of, of, of doing three new pages every day. Whereas estates can sometimes say, this is perfect. You cannot touch it. You cannot touch a word. And that becomes um, really kind of uh, a challenge. So we found at Encores that we would uh, stay away from overly protective estates in, in our initial journeys because, in fact, the first thing we did was, uh, was Bach and Harnick's Fiorello, and John Weidman came in and lovingly edited his dad's own script. So we began to introduce the idea that we were not out to destroy these pieces, but to focus the score. But as we began to do more and more of them, we realized that people get it faster and when we, when we would get to things like Call Me Madam, this, you know, it was a very, very a skillful book by Lindsay and Krauss, but people weren't patient with sitting through, especially in this form, uh, a lot of this terrific dialogue. So we would cut at least a third of, of the scripts over at Encores. And I began to see well, excuse How? me, just to leave. What, would you explain very what Encores oh, is? Oh, Encores is, 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 a, is a project at City Center uh, where we do great American musicals. We do American musicals. We think they're great. They're great American musicals in concert. And the focus has been to, to, um, um, to showcase what we think is important American writing uh, that perhaps has not been seen in a long time and, and perhaps is unlikely to be seen when it costs five million dollars to, to revive a Broadway musical, we're unlikely to see some of the um, lesser works uh, or less popular works of, of, uh, of Lesser or Kern or Gershwin or Berlin or all these great writers. And it's become, you know, we don't have the tradition <laughs> that the opera has where we keep everything in repertoire, you know? So it's been great to, to pass along a body of work to a new generation of people. There's no other way for them to see it with original orchestrations. and. And, and, and a full chorus, and the way it was heard originally. I know Alfred and I have bo both worked up at Goodspeed, where though there's this great library theater to actually hear the orchestrations, or the full orchestrations of, of Russell Bennett or Hans Bialik. Is, it's been thrilling for us. At any rate, Encores does that, and we trim the scripts considerably. And when we chose to do, by the time we got to, I guess, our third season, and we, we chose to do Chicago, um, I, you know, told John and Fred uh, that we would like to trim the script. And we brought along Tom Thompson, who he had, they had great confidence in, because Tom wrote this book for Steel Pier and As the World Goes Round, so he felt very um, cared for in the way that we would red pencil this text. And we did, 
we, we worked on it uh, only, and the reason being, not because we wanted to chop away, but we felt that the audience just gets it faster. You know, after 10 years of sung through musicals, the, the way musicals behave has seemed different. I know Wayne has experienced it with his, his basically sung through show as well. So we did it, and we sent it to Fred Ebb, and he said, what did you cut? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was probably the most generous and, and wonderful thing he could have said, because he didn't feel that he lost anything, dramaturgically, narratively, emotionally. And, and we felt that um, the, the script just felt leaner and skinnier and more modern. And, uh, uh, and that was the reason we did it. Uh, we, we did it because it seemed the best way to focus what we thought was a very down-and-one entertaining piece that wanted to behave like an entertainment as m to seduce you into the story by entertaining you so that you didn't know how far into the story you were until you had seen five or six songs. It sort of behaves like a review and then suddenly you go, oh my God, there's a story going on here, which is, I, I think, what's so extraordinary about the writing of this piece. I just think it's... Uh, um, That's what yeah. I think is extraordinary about the directing of it as well though because it because it does exactly what you say and that there's a lot of um, craft that goes into making something that is as complex an idea of what you're talking about but it seems so completely effortless when you're watching it in the theater I mean it's it's really it's really extraordinary now that business of getting things faster is so interesting because it seems to be true and it seems to have been a consequence and part of television when they used to have 30 second commercials and 15 and it turned out you get the message very quickly indeed so with the dead playwrights like with tech off or something it, not only the question of relevance but the question of getting things faster nowadays right. and with tech off that's a particularly difficult thing because part of the effect of check off is not getting things faster yeah, and moving into that's a terrible idea to get check off faster you know you can't do that <laughs> you can't do that but, but nevertheless, it's true for living playwrights that people do get things faster. You have to nowadays. trick them into listening. Yeah. You know, it's because their, their attention yeah. span is so... And it's all image. so much it's faster. I think it's almost everything can benefit from editing and cutting. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> people are, are, no. are so loath to do that of their own work. And, and I would rather cut my work than check off. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean... No, I think you, it's hard to cut something like you can't really cut Chekhov. Very but difficult. like I worked with Arthur Miller, and he was totally great about cutting his own work. I had no problem with him. He, I, we sat down around a table with the cast, and just I just said, "Let's get rid of that." And he's like, "Okay, I think get rid most, of that." Okay, I think, I think most of us want to cut. I yeah, think we're I, happy to. But I think it's trust too. I, I mean, I think it's you know, I think trust. That's a great word. You know, it's it's kind of about trust. If you have a good, you know, like if you like if you have a good relationship with your director, and you know, there there has to be some sort of the directors there, kind of like you know, just as an objective eye, you know, for the play. And if, if you have a good relationship, I, I've never had a problem with uh, living playwrights and, like, cutting and rearranging but things. I've always... What, 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 what Walter didn't say is that he's been doing musicals probably over half his life, and he knows musicals, he knows the feelings of a musical backwards and forwards, and I don't think he could have done what he did if he wasn't that totally secure about the way a musical is supposed to go. I don't think anybody with another background could have done what you did with Chicago. I, I love musicals, clearly. Yeah, and, and also the and way you understand them. The way musicals work is very different than the way a play works. You know, the play is the voice of an author. A musical is the voice of 
several writers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the composer, the lyricist, the playwright, and in the case, and, and more and more, I think, in the last 30 years, the, the, the voice of the director-choreographer. I mean, the reason we, one of the reasons we wanted to do uh, Chicago uh, at Encores is because we've been focusing writers. And it seemed to me that once you got to the 70s and the great director-choreographers and you got to Hal Prince and all those wonderful conceptual musicals and Bennett and Fosse and Champion, one of the great pieces of writing, if you will, was choreography. And we wanted to, to show a generation what the great Mr. Fosse had done, that there was indeed a vocabulary that was unique, as unique as Chekhov's writing is. Mm -hmm. There was a dance vocabulary that was the singular evolution of a, of a very dynamic artist and to put that forth as one of the ways in which the story was told not just stuff you did between the words but indeed the way the whole tone of the piece was communicated Fosse is in his silence one of the authors of this piece nice. although he did participate in the book so it was our it was our goal to put forth choreography as theater vocabulary in the musical now when you're dealing with that and and uh, and as as Wayne said, where where you deal with the Bennett, where he wanted to see how the whole stage moved, the sets, the la that's very a very different dance than finding the voice of Chekhov or Shakespeare or Wilde or Yuri. That's a different process, and 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 so. Um, what were you looking for in casting? Someone who had been there, who had seen it, or with our show. Mm -hmm. Well. Uh, you mean specifically Chicago? Went, yes. When we did Chicago, I, I immediately called, I started to do Chicago, I immediately called Anne, Ryan King, of course. Is, mm -hmm. She brings that legacy onto the stage, and frankly, she channels him. I mean, she understands, um, you know, as mm -hmm. Wayne pointed out, what, you know, how to, how to do that on stage and make 1,600 people pay attention to doing that. And it's, uh, it was Fosse's great gift to make us look at things that we didn't know we wanted to and make them wildly theatrical. And when we sat down to do it with all the designers, I, 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 I decided that, um, we decided that I, not to make this a really Fosse's career to Fosse the artist. So we began to pull images from throughout his career that I always found compelling. And clearly it was, it was obvious we were going to go to the slouch and the hat and the cigarette and the cane. But I remember the, seeing ladders on stage for the first time in, in Pippin, and I thought, gee, that was, it seemed like his invention, you know. I remember the light trough um, uh, at the top of Pippin, which, which we used and manipulated into the way we do the courtroom. Um, cell block tango, I, I said to Anne, I just want interrogation lamps and chairs. I want to do all that great chair choreography that Fosse did in Cabaret. So we, we you know, we stole from a master. We, we stole from throughout his career so uh, um, we honored his career. I hope, I hope that's what we accomplished, so that you really can't tell on a good day where, where Fosse stopped and I started and Anne finished, you know, that it was really, we had a, we had a collaboration with the, with the dead man, but it was, uh, it was glorious for us. Gene, you've done um, both musicals and, and, uh, and plays, and we were just, would you pick up on what they were yeah. saying about the, the different approaches? Of well, I was just thinking, first of all, on the subject of of brevity, of, you know, we've come from, in Shakespeare's day, it would go on all day, the show. People would leave, come back, eat. Uh, I, they had nothing else to do, I guess. 
<laughs> but uh, I, I, we had then they had five act plays. Then they would, we reduced to four act plays, and then three act plays. Well, you can't find a three act play anymore. I mean, uh, then it was that. Now it's two acts. I think it should be one act. I think most uh, authors, all due respect, today have no more to say than one act. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. Most of the plays that I've attended, uh, I say, why is there a second act? I know everything uh, I, I had to know now in one act. I may be speaking out of turn, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> I saw Candide last night. Well, now, I saw it in 1956, I think, or I'm not, no, I saw it in, uh, yeah, 56, and there was another one in 72, and, <clears throat> and I always remembered it as a wonderfully imagine of great score and so forth, but I always remember it as getting to be rather boring after a while. And last night I saw it and I thought, you know, it could have been done in one act. I don't know why we... I mean, we get the picture. We get the idea. What's and that? I think that's what you did. I was going to ask you, what was the original book? I saw the original Chicago and I remember the book as being something that seemed to me to drag it down. And when I saw you, you thinking encores, I said, my God, it's a revelation. It tells the whole story, uh, and, and it's, it's short. I can go out and, and get in a restaurant before they close. But <laughs> <laughs> I think that... <laughs> it's a cultural accident how long plays were and what the division was. Private Lives would probably be uh, the greatest comedy in English ever written, except it had to be in three acts, and the second act is a total waste of time, and then you go to the third yeah. act and complete the circle of the action of the play. But there was no possibility at the time Coward wrote it that it could be allowed to be two acts. And it is true now that we do have one act plays, yeah. without, or at least intermission-less plays, and uh, that people are not discontent with this. People no. are not discontent to go home early in that. In the old days, commercially, people feared if you're charging such such a price, you've got to give them a full evening. Yes, no, Nonsense. They, they're Nowadays, thankful that you let them out. No, as a matter of fact, there are certain things that, that keep you from reducing it to one act because of, of for instance, in Barrymore, somebody said, why, why don't you do it in one act? It's, you know, it's only an hour and a half. Uh, uh, so, uh, but it was impossible because he has to get into the Richard III makeup and costume. Yeah. So we have to have an intermission. And that's something that is uh, But that is the big clue to Teatro when we see him coming on completely yes. different. That's what's thrilling. Yes, that's, that's uh, uh, exciting and, and, and a reason for uh, But I, I suppose that I, coming back to television, I suppose we are all, we've all been made very impatient. We all, you know, just that clicker in your hand. God, it's lethal. I mean, you don't like what the... One, five seconds, boom. I didn't like it. 
Right. What was it? I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> and that's terrible. I mean, you guys being able to do that in Broadway, just go from Dream. And, uh, yes, go from Les Mis. I wanted to ask Alfred to reply. This is the playwright. Why do you write in two acts? Well, I think when plays are directed well, they can be as many acts as you want them to be. I really do think that. <laughs> but, I, but I also think that the thing that the collaboration between a director and a choreographer is very important because I think what, what Walter has done with, with Chicago, what I try to do with, with Dream was, you can tell a story through dancers and it gets back to Isabel because dancers do act. They do continue the storyline. They progress the story without getting into very heavy book scenes. You can tell it through lyrics. You can tell it through song and dance. My collaboration with Des Makinoff taught me that with, with Tommy and How to Succeed. I needed to continue to tell the story. I couldn't stop and just do a dance number because I'm the choreographer and I want to dance now. I had to trick myself into directing the dances into keep telling the story, to keep the, the thing keep moving so the audience wouldn't <coughs> get bored and go, ugh, okay, now they're dancing, but everything stopped. They used to do that in old musicals. But I think we've progressed into moving the story along through, as, through as song and dance. Part of as the story. Totally being part of the story. Unless and letting what you them do is so entertaining that you can stop for it. But I think, but, that I think what we're talking about is like every element is important. I think ah. the, right. the mandate is, is it, it's what makes an actor, a, a difference between an actor and a star. A star, to me, is somebody that you can't take your eyes off of because if you do, you're going to miss something. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because every second is, is worthwhile. And That's I think right. We were talking about uh, whether we should have a one-act play, two acts, three, four, five, and we were such issues as uh, should the musical numbers contribute to the story and should we stop for a musical number that is not contributing to the story, but which happens to be good entertainment at the same time. Uh, what do we do about these things? We're trying to generalize. And uh, for instance, the other night I went to the Candor and Ebb <coughs> uh, tribute, and uh, one of the performers was Cheetah Rivera. And she came out and did a number that had, of course, nothing to do with the, the tribute, except that Candor and Ebb had written the music. And the song is from Kiss of the Spider Woman. Well, my point is that I could not take my eyes off Cheetah Rivera. She has such style when she dances, when she sings and dances, such charisma, to, for want of a better word. She is a real star, and I, I couldn't see anything else. I didn't want to. I realized later there were about ten guys dancing with her. Didn't see them at all. <laughs> she was just mesmerizing. And of course, uh, uh, we know she's not a kid anymore. And that makes it all the more interesting and exciting. But it leads me up in long-winded style to this story that I wanted to tell you. A few years ago, <laughs> a few years ago, I, I was, I think, the second night of a, a show called Tango Argentina, which was at the Hellinger Theater. Uh, 
I always remember a, a show by what theater it was at. <laughs> I don't know the year, I don't know whether it was any good or not. But uh, Tango Argentina was, and it was one of those surprise hits. Uh, nobody thought it would amount to anything. It was, after all, a bunch of, of overweight, middle-aged uh, Buenos Aires working people who belonged to a tango club and they were so expert at it that they decided to do a show, which was wonderful, South American music and so forth. And it got very, very good reviews. And at the end of the, this was the second night, and after the first act, Julie Stein, who uh, I love dearly and who I think is, was very brilliant besides being a, a talented composer, jumped up from his second row seat and dashed up the aisle and I reached out to greet him and I said, Julie, hi! And he twirled on me and said, you see, there are no rules! <laughs> Which is, I think, <clears throat> such an important lesson for us. We don't know, we cannot lay down rules as to where, should it be a one act or two act and so forth. And, I expected a bigger laugh, but I... <laughs> I tell you, I you didn't get the laugh because everybody was no, weighing what you exactly said. Right. Because what you said really was most important. Yes. But you, and there are rules, and you, you, just to quote you, really, to turn it back, is the talent. Cheetah's talent. There are very few stars anymore, yes. but Cheetah has that quality, and her talent holds you. And the talents of, of these people middle-aged, whatever. Nobody cared how old they were right. or what they did. Right. They were extremely talented. And the ones that followed, like clones of them, were not. Right. So it's talent is the rule that, you, that, is, that weighs here. And I, if, one would think that people like you are so experienced that you would be able to see and recognize talent right away, but not Well, that's always. a very good point. Yeah, not was always. That, was that true or false? It's very hard to do it, to, to, to detect talent like that. It isn't. I, I the auditioning process is so it's brutal <laughs> and so oftentimes depressing, and I can't wait to get out of there. Don't you think that's the hardest work, though, in, in putting a play yeah, or a show well, together, is. is going through the auditioning that's process? That's why it, 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 I wish there was a better way of doing it, but it, it, it is so important to, when somebody comes in, if actors only, <clears throat> only could remind themselves more often that that the director and the producer really want them to hit a home run. They mm -hmm. really want them to do that. But our job is to, is to also make them feel that way and not get them in and out of the room quickly right. because we're so numb from hearing the same scene, you know, however great the writing is, you know, 200 times. I think, the, besides the auditioning process, I think keeping the show at the level of where you want it to be is even more difficult than getting the show up. I find that that's the most exhausting experience for me. How often do you go back? A lot, because I'm a good father. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's my baby, but, uh, but it's, it's hard. I mean, I wish someone would pay me not to go back, because <laughs> I could see where things go. Um, a lot of stuff happens with performers. They, they, start, they start being needy. They start being pushed. They start pushing their performance. They, they forget about the environment and the situation that they are in and trust that that's enough. And then it starts coming to be individualized for each one of the performers. It's like, okay, I need to be better. 
they're not responding to me. So they do a little bit more. And what happens is it, it gets a reverse it reaction. It everything. Right. And the audience pulls back. Instead of taking them into their arms and caressing them, they go, too much. It's just too much. Relax. What happens with a straight show with someone yes. like Frank Langella? Um, and and, and uh, Three Sisters, too, because you're getting into very right. heavy-duty stuff there. <laughs> when you're way. dealing with a star. Right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, like, I like to, uh, you know, I'm not from the intimidation school. <laughs> Sorry, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I, but I, and, you know, like, because I'm still kind of learning on the job, uh, you know, I, I learn from every, from every company that I, that I work with. And, um, and I try to... You know, in the rehearsal process, um, you know, develop an ensemble in mm -hmm. a way. I kind of start from, you know, scratch with everybody. And I, I like to let everybody feel, you know, all the actors feel as though they have as much input into the work that I do and, and that um, they own, you know, part of the show just like I own part of the show. And that we, you know, I, I spend a lot of time kind of helping everybody just kind of come together into a, you know, a similar way of thinking about things. And I, I try to set up a you know, a, a looser structure from which they can work because I feel, because I was an actor and I, you know, when I was doing shows eight times a week, you know, I hated it because, you know, I felt that I had to deliver the same thing every night right. and, you know, if I didn't, you know, please this actor, that, you know, they would get mad and if I didn't please that actor, then they would get mad and it was always, you know, this, this and that. So I try to create an environment where people can continue to work eight times a week and try new things and, and come in, you know, if they have an idea, uh, to come in and try it, you know, even months into the run. And, uh, you know, to just to, okay, with the stage manager, if they want to talk to me, call me or whatever, to just give them a chance to continue to feel as though they're working and developing. It's easier in a play than in a musical, because in a musical you have to do so many things to, to the beat. But in a play, um, you know, they're living, especially in Three Sisters, something like Three Sisters, where, um, you know, it, it filled out so much as the run went along. And we all knew that, you know, it was Chekhov. It was, you know, we didn't have a very long rehearsal period because we just can't afford it in New York to rehearse that long. But, um, you know, as every time I went back, they would say, give me notes, more notes, more notes. And I would say, you know what, I'm not giving you notes because you're finding what, you know, the play's open already and you're finding who the person is. And if you veer off track, I'll let you know. But I'm not going to sit there and take 20 pages of notes and come back and say, you know, don't pick up the glass when you say blah, blah, blah. And don't, you know, this when you that. You know, it's just not my thing. I like, I, I really want people to feel as though they're growing in it. And it was the same with present laughter. And, you know, every time I check in a present laughter, you know, they would find certain things that I thought, you know, were helpful in telling the story and some things that weren't helpful in telling the story. And I would just reason as to why, you know, I thought this element was not working and why that element helped. And, you know, that's how it happened. And, you know, somebody like Frank, you know, he, he grew, every time I went to see the play, he was, you know, working on something different. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, you know, what acting's really all about. It can't be about being chess pieces on a board and, and following, you know, just what I say, yeah. you know. I mean, of course, I want it to be what I want it to be, but at the same time, I'm willing to compromise on the side of the actor if, because I really do believe that they know. Uh -huh. You know, they're experiencing it every night. They're in it. They're working with those partners. And if there's something that I have imposed on them that isn't that, you know, from me, from my point of view is working and from their point of view isn't working, I have to err on their side uh -huh. and try to find a way to help them, you know, so. Would I, that satisfy you as a playwright? Yeah, I, I was just thinking, listening to that. When, when I work with people like, well, like Dana, for instance, there was a couple of lines in previews, and in Atlanta that Dana wasn't happy with. And it was getting a laugh where, where we didn't want to laugh. And Ron said, well, maybe he, he, we tried to work around it. 
but Dana is very respectful of text, and she wouldn't just not say a line. Uh, I once worked at Goodspeed with, with, with somebody who changed all the lines all the time, <laughs> who said uh, that she thought it would get a laugh that way. I mean, it was some, I don't remember what some old, I don't remember what it was, but I had sat up there and sat up all night writing these stupid jokes, and at least I wanted to hear right. if they were going to play. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I always, I mean, I never let anybody stray from the text. That's the one thing that I am really, I'm very, yes. you know, I never yes. do that because <laughs> I really do believe that it's important that, mm -hmm. you know, the writer be heard, you know, for whatever, you know, right. you know, so that's what, what it's really about. what kind of a director about. are you? You know, I say, let the writer hang himself. <laughs> <laughs> the role no, merchant. I, I, I think uh, I think when you go back, it is a it is a, a, a very tough thing. I too was an actor, and uh, to get that same sense of urgency uh, that is necessary to get uh, the audience to really be interested is is so difficult because you wear it out. You wear it out. Wear out what you what what you're playing. I, I find that the best thing, perhaps, is to come back and uh, just have a talk uh. and try to stimulate uh -huh. the cast through a talk, which they generally respond to beautifully because they want to be cared for. Uh -huh. they, they, they want you to still be interested. And as a matter of fact, they get very upset when you don't come back. That's right. And, uh, they feel neglected, and mm -hmm. it's a, lo a lonely, as, as great as it is to be in a hit, it's a lonely mm -hmm. life to, uh, after all the famous people have been in to see <laughs> yeah, right. And you've got to deal with the average audience and the bus tours. Right. <laughs> but it's a double-edged sword, because I think on one hand, like last night, they all had, you know, like thick notebooks out because they wanted to hear from me, mm -hmm. and yet they were, I know that, you know, they were thinking like, oh, I hope he doesn't ask me to take out that thing that I'm so in love with doing yeah. right now yeah, that gets absolutely. that big response. Absolutely. And, and so, but going into it, I knew that, okay, I'm going to have to, like, find things that, that they're doing that are wonderful, that are new, and, and find some things that, you know, need yanking. Pull back. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it, last night, fortunately, it was easy because the growth was, was wonderful. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but it's May in New York, so it's a, it's a very electric time. Um, but, uh, but for me, when you were talking about how when actors, uh, Wayne, when you said that actors, after a time, and dancers, feel they have to embroider things because they, they think they want to get that response more and more and more, and they feed off the laughter or whatever. Right. Um, for me, what happened last night was there was a scene where all the individual moments were terrific, mm -hmm. but they had forgotten what the scene was about. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, because everyone's taking care of themselves. Each beat, you know, the laugh would come or the this and that, and, and to the naked eye it would seem fine, but, but there was no thrust to the reason why I'm doing this is because mm -hmm. I want that. Right. There was no, that, you know, there was absolutely. I often like to talk about, like, you know, um, like I said, you know, I, I mean, if this is only my own way, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I often like to talk about 
uh, what the event of the scene is, you know, so that, you know, you, that's all you have to do is to remind people what the event, you know, what exactly the scene is about. You can, and so you don't have to go back and give all of these specific things about doing this and that, but just give a little reminder that, you know, this scene is about, you know, you seducing you or, you know, whatever, right. Right. and just remember that, and then they know in their own heart of hearts that, you know, some of the things that they're doing might have strayed, because I really do think when they feel like they own it, it, it seems more alive to me and lived in. I, that, well, that's no, going back to trust. Yeah. Go on. Well, yeah. Yeah. No, I was just say the, because I was an actor as well, and I think there's a part in the process where you really do get a deeper and deeper understanding of the role, and then sometimes you wear out that well. And I think what happens is the director often understands the play better, but there comes a point where the actor understands his role better than better the director than, ever yeah. will. Yeah, because, right. because it is his daily journey, you yeah. know. It becomes right. nuanced and as it goes yeah. along. Sometimes I go back and just try to remind the company of what the story is that they're that they're rich you know that they're participating in mm -hmm. and and that changes things we you know we had a note session not too long ago where there was one scene all the decisions it was Richard it was more layered it was dynamic but they they all they both figured out how to say their lines and they just got to that moment where they stopped listening to each other mm -hmm. and I said would you just to just listen to each other tonight in that scene none of the readings changed and it was on fire all over again they right. just Forgot that uh, they were supposed to listen. Yeah, right. You know? right. And so the, the same intentions, the same lighterings, had a spontaneity, and mm -hmm. and I think it's director's job sometimes just go and remind people what the story. We have some is. questions here. Oh, sure. Would you mind answering them? Would you? Hi, my name is. Who you are? My name is Lisa, and um, we you talked a little bit about the playwright director collaboration. Well, what about the choreographer director collaboration? And I guess Wayne and Walter, you can fight it out. Um. I think it's very important. I mean, I think, uh, I think a collaboration between a director and choreographer should not, you should not know where one picked up and the other one left off. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you throw your egos away and you go, okay, uh, do you need me to help you block that scene so I can get into the musical number? So we, it, it, it's all seamless and you go, yes. And then the director comes inside and he goes, well, why are they doing that dance step? Well, uh, I don't know. I guess because they're, you know, and it's like that dance step needs to continue telling the story. And if you, see, if you achieve that, then you have a great collaboration. If you don't and you see the choreographer stick out or the director stick out, I don't think it's successful. You know, I think I my, my, my feeling with anybody in a collaboration, whether it's the designer or the choreographer, I just say, make me look good. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's important to, for, in the collaboration to decide what the song and what the dance is about. What that you would examine is. it the way you examine any scene mm -hmm. and what the story is and what the narrative is and, and where one, wh where one has the idea and one does, it doesn't matter right. who comes up with the idea. Right. As long as you know that you have put that scene to a beat and some theatrical way on the stage, that's what's... Well, I think all, all dances are scenes. So you yeah. have to treat it as a scene and it's a continuation of the, the speaking scene goes into the singing dancing scene that goes into the next scene so it's all telling the same story. Isn't I'm, that oh, what it's sorry. supposed to do is to move the story along? I, I feel like dance? today it does. I think in the older shows like Oklahoma everything stopped they did a seven minute ballet mm -hmm. and then went on. I don't think we have the luxury anymore we to do that. A question yeah. here. My name is Shlobo Gwertz. I'm a playwright and my question is addressed to any or all of the directors. What's the one emotion you most enjoy triggering in your audience, and how successful or unsuccessful 
have you been so far? It's a, it's a tough question because every tough because question. everything you know every play um, you know kind of incorporates so many levels of emotion that it's it's hard to pinpoint you know just one you know if it's a good play it kind of runs the gamut of different well, emotions and exactly. you can hope to hit as many yeah, as you possibly can. Aren't there different can. emotions? Exactly. I mean, it's not one emotion. If you're rehearsing a play for four weeks and and you you are excited about the prospects and you bring the audience in. Every moment of the play, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that they're going to be here, here. I want them to right. be exactly where I want them to be for the two hours and a half. If they're involved, uh, as you're invo you try to involve yourself as a director, uh, and you watch them and feel their presence, and you know whether they are also involved in following what you had intended them to follow through the actors. Uh, that's what you want. So that it, it, it incorporates all the emotions that, that you put in the play. Sure. What a full and wonderful, wonderful panel this has been. And I feel that I would like to have you go on and on. I wish you could, because there's so much I've learned and, and so much I could learn from all of you, as all of us can. But the time is up, and I have to say that this is the finish of the American Theatre Wing seminar on working in the theatre, and it's a playwright, director, choreographer panel, and it's coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And today's panel has been absolutely extraordinary in their generous sharing of knowledge and thoughtfulness in telling us what it is to work in the theatre. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs>